Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hi, I'm Libby, and I'll be reading you today's Cape Cod Times, dated Friday, February 2nd, 2024. Today's forecast calls for highs in the low 40s. We'll have a morning shower, and then it will be cloudy and breezy. Tonight, temperatures go down to 32. It will continue to be cloudy and windy, and we may have snow showers later. Saturday and Sunday, the outlook looks about the same, with highs in the mid-30s and lows in the high 20s. We may have continuing snow into Saturday morning, but Sunday looks beautiful with clouds and sunshine. By special request from a few of our faithful listeners, we now present the lottery numbers. For Thursday's midday drawing of the numbers game, we have numbers 1, 9, 8, and 7. The evening drawing was 7, 9, 9, and 5. For Thursday's mass cash drawing, we have numbers 4, 20, 21, 22, and 35. Wednesday's Powerball drawing numbers were 15, 18, 19, 41, 43, and an extra ball of 14. And finally, for the Mega Millions drawing on Tuesday, we have numbers 3, 5, 16, 58, 59, and the extra ball of number 11. Our lead story on page 1 of today's newspaper is headlined, Hyannis Man Shot and Killed by Police in Maine, by Ann Brennan of the Cape Cod Times. A Hyannis man was fatally shot by a Freiburg, Maine police officer Wednesday night after a two-state chase, Freiburg Police Chief Aaron Mick said. Kenneth Ellis, age 52, of Hyannis, was shot after the pickup truck he was driving crashed, and he emerged from the vehicle carrying a knife. The officer on the scene repeatedly instructed Ellis to drop the knife, but he refused to do so, Mick said in a telephone interview. The suspect continued to walk toward the cruiser, and the officer fired eight rounds, he said. Ellis was pronounced dead at the scene. The shooting is under investigation by the Maine Attorney General's office, as is the policy when an officer uses deadly force, Mick said. The officer involved was placed on paid administrative leave, he said. All eight rounds discharged by the officer were accounted for, Mick said, adding that bullets struck no pedestrians, cars, or buildings. Ellis lived on Cape Cod in Hyannis and Dennis within the last five years. His mother, Gloria Rose, said Thursday that on the advice of her attorney, the family had no comment about Ellis. Until an investigation is over and finalized, we were told not to speak to any media, said Rose, who currently lives in Pennsylvania. How did the incident start? The incident started at about 6.30 p.m. when a motorist told a Conway, New Hampshire police sergeant that a black F-150 pickup truck was speeding, tailgating, and passing people on the road, Mick said. A short time later, an officer spotted the truck parked at a convenience store in Conway, Mick said. Ellis was outside the vehicle, and when the officer tried to talk to him, Ellis returned to the truck and drove off. The officer pursued Ellis and notified Maine authorities the truck was headed toward the border, Mick said. 
a Freiburg police officer, and an Oxford County Sheriff's deputy were stationed at the visitor center in Freiburg. The sheriff's deputy followed a truck that passed by, but Mick said it was the wrong truck. A short time later, a second truck, going 80 to 100 miles an hour, drove by, he said. The Freiburg officer pursued the truck. As the truck headed toward downtown Freiburg, it T-boned a vehicle making a left turn into a gas station, Mick said. The truck then hit a second car, causing it to flip over and continued about 150 to 200 feet and hit a pylon in the center of town, he said. Ellis emerged from the passenger side of the truck carrying a knife, Mick said. In the meantime, the sheriff's deputy collided with a vehicle making a left turn, Mick said. The deputy suffered what were thought to be non-life-threatening injuries, according to the Associated Press. A total of seven cars were involved in the incident, Mick said. It was a wild scene in downtown Freiburg. Previous indictment in Barnstable Court, but charges were dropped. In 2019, Ellis, then of Dennis, was charged and later indicted on criminal charges, including rape of a child and indecent assault and battery on a child. The charges were dropped on July 15, 2022, in Barnstable Superior Court. The charges against Ellis were dismissed because of the alleged victim's inability to testify due to the person's mental health state and the unavailability of mental health resources for them, according to the docket. The Great Sagamore Marsh Fire, Looking Back at Bourne's 100 Years of Firefighting, by Paul Gately, special to the Cape Cod Times. Dateline, Bourne. It was a quiet midweek afternoon in Sagamore Beach when all hell broke loose in the Great Sagamore Marsh. The wetland had ignited. This was a wildfire, an extreme anomaly. The marsh, which naturally separates year-round homes at the western edge of the sprawling wetland from seasonal cottages lined up to the east along Phillips Road, was burning. And it was stubborn. Dry weather with low humidity, a steady breeze out of Cape Cod Bay, plenty of biomass. Flames would die in wet spots and flash anew in upland and spread south toward the canal. Most were out of reach. Firefighters from Bourne, Otis, Falmouth, Sandwich, Onset, and Plymouth, along with the State Forestry Division, descended on the suddenly fiery marsh, one of the most difficult Cape Cod fires of the late 1970s. What can a fire department accomplish when a vast wetland burns out of control? When a world apart fills with thick gray smoke? When firefighting is challenged anew? Veteran firefighters and their officers knew the quick answer. Save nearby homes. Wildlife, including a deer herd, scattered into woods north and west of the marsh between Williston and Phillips Roads, and from Pilgrim Road to Scusset Beach Road, leading to the state reservation with its volatile scrub pine landscape. A few flames jumped the canal. Given access hindrances such as swampy conditions surrounded by bullbriar, authorities considered ordering an evacuation of homes situated on the edge of the Upper Cape wetland. Explored for years by only those who knew water depths in exact locations, and pathways beaten into marsh grass that meandered but were considered somewhat safe. Engine 3 got behind the flames that day. Former Bourne Fire Chief Stephen Philbrook, then a young firefighter, recalled in a January 18th interview. 
I was working the dispatch desk, so I missed the action, but they saved four homes along Phillips Road that afternoon. It was remarkable. Will Bourne celebrate the fire department's centennial in 2025? The Bourne Fire Department's nearly century-long history is filled with extraordinary stories like the Great Sagamore Marsh Fire. As the department comes up on its 100th year in existence, Philbrook, now long retired, says it's time to look back and remember with an observance, special event, or apparatus-filled parade in 2025. He has asked the select board to appoint a fire department centennial committee, recommending Chief David Cody, Lieutenant Greg Edgecombe, call captain Phil Tura, and retired firefighter Mike Hodge, as well as others, serve on the panel. Select Board Chair Mary Jane Mastrangelo said in an 8, June 18th email that she plans to invite Philbrook to a February meeting, and that the board should decide if a celebration should be planned by a formal town committee or an informal group of interested residents. Born historian Michael Burgess of Westerly, Rhode Island, a born then and now newspaper columnist, has long chronicled the Bourne Fire Department's early days. He donated his files and writings to the Bourne archives. The Buzzards Bay Progressive Society was established in early 1900, Burgess wrote in a January 17th email, and it bought the first fire apparatus housed at Cohasset Hall on Main Street. In 1925, the Bourne Fire Department was established and used that structure, he said. In September 1931, while firefighters fought a blaze in a barn behind the Buzzards Bay Hotel, a spark set fire to the roof of department headquarters 700 feet away, he said. Both wood buildings burned to the ground. Town clerk Barry Johnson's father was a permanent member of the department when the tragic and cataclysmic 1938 summer hurricane hit the region, Johnson wrote in a January 18th email. His grandmother was a very active member of the early Progressive Society, he said. I was a member of the Buzzards Bay Station Group, Johnson said. Got paid $2 an hour. We used to go head-to-head -head with Monument Beach Group. Deputy Chief Bob Eldridge gave me my first chance in a snowbank to run the nozzle of the fire hose at a Buzzards Bay fire. The 1925 town meeting included four articles to establish the department. Arguments pivoted on increased property protection, additions to the tax rolls, and immediate reductions in fire insurance rates in some localities. Voters were told there was no need to buy a pumper engine. It would be too costly, and there were sufficient and available water supplies, they were told. Pay for call firemen would be $1 to respond to a fire and working the flames during the first hour. They would be paid $0.50 cents per hour if needed after that. Many recent fires were unique. The Bourne Fire Department has battled infamous blazes in the past half century that are part of department lore and town history. The case of the 1973 fire that destroyed the Gray Gables Inn, the former summer White House of Grover, Cleveland, was never solved. State authorities said the cause was arson. There was an investigation and it remains open. The fiery, high-profile destruction of the Domino's nightclub and Gladys' diner at Main Street in the early 1970s was caused by a kitchen grease buildup, according to investigators. Arson, meanwhile, has long been suspected as the cause of the Sierra Gold Room destruction at North Sagamore in 1976. 
fire destroyed the Sagamore Lodge overlooking Cape Cod Bay in 1974. A 1975 inferno burned 1,200 acres in the town forest. And a 1991 nighttime China Bay restaurant fire in Buzzards Bay could not be extinguished until the gas company arrived the next morning to shut off its feed. There were other fires of note. The Fiddlebee's nightclub at Buttermilk Bay, Bob's Sea Grill at the Cohasset Narrows, the 2007 Metzaluna Blaze at Main Street, and the May 2019 apartment house fire at Trading Post Corners. A 1993 fire destroyed the Sagamore Lumber Company, and the December 22, 1981 shipboard fire on the Massachusetts Maritime Academy training ship Bay State killed a cadet. Philbrook and now-retired firefighter Paul Forsberg were first on the scene at MMA, observing cadets aboard the ship gasping for air through portholes, their faces blackened by smoke. We got the ladder up and started getting cadets off the ship, Philbrook said on January 18th. Sadly, a student died. We just happened to be in the area on a training mission when we saw the black smoke. Falmouth Sites to Get Upgrades with State Money by Denise Coffey of the Cape Cod Times By tapping into a grant from the Seaport Economic Council, the managers of Macmillan Pier in Provincetown want to help people who might accidentally take a short walk off a long pier. Macmillan Pier will soon sport ladders reaching from the waterline to the top of the pier. Besides the ladders, the $800,000 grant will help pay for security cameras, hoists for commercial fishermen, and structural upgrades to certain areas of the pier. The ladders were identified as a necessary safety measure because of heavy foot traffic on the 1,450-foot pier. An estimated 100,000 tourists, museum-goers, charter boat customers, and fishermen use the pier annually. The public safety concerns were noted during a two-fold process held by the town. In April, Foth Engineering conducted a 10-day topside and below-deck inspection. A public meeting with stakeholders, especially commercial fishermen, identified other concerns, according to pier manager Jamie Dimitrio. The Provincetown Public Pier Corporation proposed a list of safety measures when applying for the council's grant. A proposal for lighting has been completed, but Demetrio said the cost of other items needs to be determined by the engineering firm before proposals can be written up and sent out to bid. We try to get this stuff done as expeditiously as we can, and knowing that it's a municipality, and the process takes a little longer, she said. I would like to say spring or summer, but I like to get things done yesterday. Provincetown and Falmouth were the two Cape communities to receive the Seaport Economic Council grants, according to a January 25th announcement by the Healy Driscoll administration. The towns will have to pay one quarter of the total project costs. Replacing a bulkhead at Simpson's Landing in Falmouth. Falmouth received $344,000 in grant money to replace a bulkhead at Simpson's Landing. The 115 linear foot bulkhead will be installed seaward of the wooden bulkhead that's currently in place, according to harbormaster Greg Frazier. The footprint will not change, Frazier said. Frazier said an attempt to repair the bulkhead in 2021 ran into problems when crews couldn't drive metal sheathing 
into the harbor floor because of old bridge abutments. After conducting a series of test drives one and a half feet into the harbor, they decided to install a new bulkhead. The commercial bulkhead is at the mouth of Falmouth Harbor next to the Clamshack property. It's the only commercial dock in Falmouth. It's used by commercial fishermen for loading and offloading and by commuter boats. The Seaport Economic Council grants are designed to help the state's 78 coastal communities improve resident and visitor access to waterfront assets, lessen the impacts of climate change, and promote dredging projects and those for commercial maritime industries. This latest round of grants went to six municipalities and was worth $2 million. Gas prices rose on Cape compared to last week by Denise Coffey of the Cape Cod Times. Gas prices in Massachusetts remained at an average of $3.07 a gallon of regular fuel on Monday, the same as last week's average price per gallon, according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration. The average fuel price in Massachusetts has fallen about $0.09 cents since last month. According to the federal agency, gas prices across the state in the last year have been as low as $3.07 on Monday and as high as $3.76 on August 7th. A year ago, the average gas price in Massachusetts was 9% higher at $3.38 per gallon. As usual, once drivers crossed the Cape Cod Canal on either the Bourne or Sagamore bridges, prices rose, except in Sandwich, where prices stayed the same at $3.09 per gallon at two speedway stations. Gas stations along Main Street in Bourne rose $0.10 cents from last week, according to the crowdsourced data collector GasBuddy. Sitgo and Super Petroleum offered gas at $2.93 a gallon for regular, up from $2.83 last week. Shell and other stations on Main Street and the Scenic Highway were slightly higher at $2.99 a gallon. In Barnstable, the cheapest gas was again reserved for BJ's members with prices at $2.95 a gallon, 11 cents more than last week. Other stations on Iano Road and West Main Street in Hyannis ranged up to $3.19 per gallon. Prices in Dennis ranged from $3.09 to $2.29 per gallon at three gas stations all within a quarter of a mile of each other, proving it pays to shop. Prices in Orleans rose $0.06 cents per gallon from last week. Three stations were reported as charging $3.45 per gallon for regular gas. The Cumberland Farms in Provincetown had raised prices $0.20 cents from last week to $3.59 a gallon. The gas station information and gas prices on GasBuddy are primarily entered by drivers. The crowdsourced information for specific gas stations can range from minutes to days old. The average gas price in the United States last week was $3.10, making prices in the state about 1% lower than the nation's average. The average national gas price is up from last week's average of $3.06 per gallon. Puxatawney Phil isn't a very accurate forecaster. By Eric Legata and Jordan Mendoza of USA Today. If trained experts have trouble forecasting what sort of temperatures are in store across the U.S. several weeks in the future, then what should we expect from a simple marmot? Come Groundhog Day, many will gather in Pennsylvania's Gobbler's Knob to eagerly await whether Puxatawney Phil is destined to see his shadow, signaling another six weeks of winter. 
But if historical data is any indication, placing our faith in Phil and other lesser-known groundhogs to determine the length of winter may be a foolhardy endeavor. Still, the fun tradition to break up the monotony of the bitter cold months has endured for well over a century, regardless of how often Phil is right. Here's what to know about just how reliable his predictions have come to be. Sadly, the groundhog is often wrong when it comes to his predictions. Last year was the third straight year the groundhog has spotted his shadow, something he has done 107 times since his first prediction in 1887. Though he has apparently seen his shadow in 84% of his predictions, Phil has been right only about 39% of the time, according to the Storm Facts Weather Almanac. Phil's track record in a recent 10-year span has kept up with that historical trend, with the groundhog being right just 40% of the time, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's National Centers for Environmental Information. The agency compared U.S. national temperatures with Phil's forecasts to arrive at its conclusion. The Groundhog Day gathering has become a cornerstone event in Puxatawney, which has marked the occasion every year since mention of the holiday first appeared in 1886 in the local newspaper, according to the Punxsutawney Groundhog Club. Tourists from all over the world make the trek to Gobbler's Knob, where the club's president speaks groundhoggies to Phil before translating the animal's prediction. Since 1887, Puxatawney Phil has predicted the weather outlook 127 times, as there have been only 10 instances where it was not recorded or he did not appear. He has seen his shadow the most, as he has predicted a longer winter 107 times, or 84% of the time. And in a small piece from the Delaware News Journal, we learn that Delaware has a groundhog too. While Phil might be the most recognized, he's not the only famous groundhog. Delaware has a celebrity groundhog, Middletown's Chunk the Groundhog. Chunk became a viral sensation after Jeff Permar spotted the groundhog in his backyard garden and posted the harmonious coexistence online. Four years after Chunk's online debut, he has growing internet success on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and TikTok. Last spring, Chunk was featured in People magazine and now has nearly 560,000 followers on Instagram, with some videos on both Instagram and YouTube garnering more than a million views. Starbucks adds olive oil coffee at U.S. stores by Susan Salaski of the Detroit Free Press. Dateline Detroit. How about some olive oil with your morning cup of joe? Coffee lovers can now get Starbucks' new Oleato coffee drink at all the coffee giant's locations in the U.S. and Canada. First rolled out last February in Italy, Starbucks' Oleato beverage pairs its coffee with a spoonful of the Partana brand of extra virgin olive oil. Seattle-based Starbucks calls the beverage mix a velvety smooth, deliciously lush coffee for customers to enjoy an elevated coffee experience. Last March, the beverages were available at only 15 company-operated stores across the U.S. The Oleato beverage may remind people how the keto diet pairs coffee with fats like coconut oil or grass-fed butter to make bulletproof coffee. The new coffee olive oil beverages, Starbucks said, 
are permanent menu items and available at company-owned and operated Starbucks locations. The idea for Oleato came from Starbucks former CEO Howard Schultz. It was Schultz who, on his first trip to Italy decades ago, got the idea for bringing the Italian coffeehouse concept to Starbucks coffee with only 11 locations at that time, according to Starbucks' website. The global chain now has nearly 36,000 locations. The rollout of Starbucks Oleato also includes the debut of new beverages. Starbucks Oleato Golden Foam Iced Shaken Espresso with Toffee Nut features Starbucks Blonde Espresso with toffee nut and oat milk topped with Oleato Golden Foam. Vanilla Sweet Cream Cold Foam infused with Partana Extra Virgin Olive Oil. Its Oleato Cafe Latte with oat milk combines Starbucks Blonde Espresso Roast with creamy oat milk infused with Partana Extra Virgin Olive Oil. You can also add Oleato Golden Foam to any beverage. Emails to Starbucks regarding the olive oil-infused coffee items were not returned. 49ers and Chiefs in Rare Super Bowl Rematch by Josh DeBow of the Associated Press The San Francisco 49ers finally climbed back up the playoff mountain to return to the Super Bowl only to find a familiar foe waiting for them. When the Niners get a second shot at a Super Bowl against the Kansas City Chiefs, it will be a rare title game rematch in this short of a span. It's perfect, 49ers defensive end Nick Bosa said about getting a second shot to knock off Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs in the past five seasons. They're as great an organization, coach, quarterback as there is, and they were down, not looking great this year either, and they're playing their best ball now, so it's going to be a big challenge. There have only been eight Super Bowl rematches in the previous 57 games, with just three happening in a five-year span before this rematch. The winners of those three rematches were the teams that won the first meeting. There will be more than a dozen players scheduled to appear in this game, including several stars on both teams, after also playing in the game won by Kansas City 31-20 in Miami following the 2019 season. The Chiefs rallied from 10 points down in the fourth quarter to win that game and earn the first of two Super Bowl titles with Mahomes and coach Andy Reid at the helm. Kansas City also lost another and will be the third team to reach the championship game in four out of five seasons. We already have a pretty good idea how it's going to look, San Francisco coach Kyle Shanahan said. They've been doing it a while. Since we met them in 19, Seems like they've been there every year since. We've been trying really hard to get back to this moment. Both teams have eight players on the active roster who played for them in the first meeting with Bosa, joined by Debo Samuel, George Kittle, Fred Warner, Dre Greenlaw, Eric Armstead, Kyle Juzik, and Mitch Wisnowski. Mahomes will be joined by Travis Kelsey, Chris Jones, Harrison Butker, Mikol Hardman, James Winchester, Nick Allegretti, and Blake Bell. San Francisco also has cornerback Charvarius Ward, who was on the Chiefs team four years ago that beat the Niners, and injured tight end Ross Dwelly, who was on season-ending injured reserve. The Chiefs have a former Niners player from that game in receiver Richie James, along with defensive lineman Derek Nandi on IR, 
and Austin Ryder and Mike Pennell on the practice squad. Here's a look at a few of the other times there was a Super Bowl rematch within five seasons of the first meeting. Giants versus Patriots. Eli Manning and the Giants spoiled New England's bid for a perfect season in 2007 and then pulled off the upset again four years later. The Patriots came into Super Bowl 42 with an 18-0 record and were on the brink of matching the perfect season of the 1972 Dolphins when Tom Brady threw a six-yard TD pass to Randy Moss to make it 14-10 with two minutes and 42 seconds to go. But Manning drove New York down the field with help from David Tyree's helmet catch and threw a game-winning TD to Plaxico Burris to stun New England. Manning did it again in the 2011 season, driving to a game-winning touchdown with 57 seconds left for a 21-17 win. Cowboys versus the Bills Dallas and Buffalo had the only Super Bowl rematch in consecutive seasons, meeting at the end of the 92 and 93 campaigns. The Cowboys got the best of both. They used nine takeaways and four TD passes from Troy Aikman to hand the Bills a 52-17 loss in Super Bowl XXVII. The rematch was far closer, but had the same end result. James Washington returned a fumble for a TD early in the third quarter to tie the game, and Emmett Smith ran for two TDs in the second half for a 30-13 win. We've reached the halfway point of our program today, and regular listeners are aware that at this stage of the broadcast, we move to the obituaries. We just have one obituary today, and it is for Marie A. Ryan, Dateline, North Grafton. Marie A. Pinkman Ryan, 73, of North Grafton, formerly of Harwichport, passed away peacefully on Tuesday, January 30th. For her complete obituary and service details, please visit the website of Westboro Funeral Home. Today is the first Friday of the month, so it's time to read Sara Lee Perrell's column, headlined, Not to Letting Dementia Steal Decades of Loving Memories. Early New Year's Day, my husband Bob was rushed by ambulance to the emergency room at Cape Cod Hospital. Although that day was hell, it was miraculously transformative. You'll see. The night before, I had been sitting by myself watching New Year's Eve celebrations on TV. So at midnight, I decided to have a real drink. I found an old bottle of whiskey, had my drink, and went to bed. The next morning, I heard horrifying noises coming from the living room. I found my husband on the floor. He kept trying to get up, only to fall on his head each time. He could not speak. My call to 911 resulted in the paramedics showing up within seven or eight minutes. My husband has dementia, I told them. Bob, still unresponsive, lay motionless. It looked like a catastrophic stroke. When I watched the paramedics take Bob out of the front door on a stretcher, I just knew it would be the very last time I would see my husband alive. Desperately, I tried to quell panic as I quickly got dressed to go to the ER. It was then that I saw the bottle of whiskey. Last night, it was full. Now, it was empty. The whole bottle in one hour. Bob doesn't drink. He hasn't had alcohol for at least 40 years. Whiskey is the same color as the cold tea Bob guzzles glass after glass all day long. Thinking it was tea, 
he drank the whole bottle in a one-hour period. Now panic got to me. I called 911 again and said, I know what happened. My husband drank an entire bottle of whiskey. The operator said she'd let the ER or the paramedics know. Assuming that the communication was made, I, unfortunately, let it go. You do know where this is going. When I found Bob on his gurney at the ER, five staff members were working on him, and I said, you know about the alcohol, right? They did not know. This vital, life-saving news had never been communicated. Bob had already had test after test, none of which included a blood or urine test for alcohol. With that massive amount of liquor, he could have died. After hearing from me, those tests were done with the results I expected. Bob, still out of it, kept trying to get out of bed. I pushed against his chest but just couldn't stop. It took two people to get him back down. After being there about four hours, I went to the cafeteria to buy us some food. With my spinal cord injury, it took me 45 minutes to get there. When I came back, Bob was being whisked away. I called out to the nurse who was quickly pushing his gurney, where are you taking him? To get a chest x-ray. Hobbling along with my cane, I couldn't catch up and she did not slow down. I was panting, why an x-ray? I kept calling out to her. What happened when I was gone? I know she heard me, but she just kept speeding away and then disappeared behind a door. I'll never know why the doctor ordered that chest x-ray. Frustration at the hospital and at home, too. I kept myself from exploding, which I'm ashamed to tell you, is something I've had a very tough time controlling these days. I'm not just talking frustration at the hospital, but at home, too. I raise my voice. I shout. I scream. Because of my rage against against the damn disease, the finality, the horrible future outlook, I've even let our marriage falter. Bob was cleared to go home at 6.30 p.m. After I settled him into his chair, I went on a rampage, not just throwing out any liquor in the house, but by hiding anything liquid, even dishwashing liquid. You see, Bob has no filters on what's drinkable or edible and what is poison. I've ordered locks for the cabinets. I believe that the massive amounts of alcohol coupled with the disorientation of being in the ER damaged him. Since then, he hasn't been able to say his name or mine. His ability to find the most basic of words, like chair, has disappeared. Although lately my temper has been inexcusably flaring, there was a moment in the yard when I couldn't stop crying. I saw my best friend, my person, so vulnerable and helpless, so confused by the rush of people, the big space, the unfamiliar colors of the walls. As I watched over my keep, I saw the decades of our marriage go by like a whisper. I saw us in our two-person kayak, be it rain, snow, winter, or spring. We dreamingly paddle in synchronicity while music played from our portable CD player, as we'd seamlessly glide along the glistening waters of Cape Cod Bay. I pictured us then, and now. So I made a ruthless self-assessment. It was pretty bad. It was then I knew it's my time to change. I will not let Bob's dementia ruin us. I will not allow this monstrous disease erase the deep love we have between us. 
No matter where this dreadful path goes, I will be there for him. No matter how many times I've shouted in anguish, I can't take this anymore. I will take it. Not always with grace, and not always with dignity, and not always with self-forgiveness for my ample shortcomings. The words to my newly found prayer. May I please be granted the courage to face just one more day. May I fearlessly learn to say, easy does it, whenever I'm internally screaming, I hate this, or worse, I hate myself. May I always see the part that is my beautiful soulmate, not just the disease of dementia. And if it's at all possible, please, oh please, grant me the wisdom to know the difference. Award-winning columnist Sara Lee Peril lives in Marston's Mills, and her column runs the first Friday of each month. Today's Ask Carolyn column is headlined, Couples Relationship Buckles Under the Weight of Mom's Indiscretion. Dear Carolyn, My mother has caused innumerable problems in my 15-year relationship by violating my partner's boundaries. I thought that we had largely resolved this situation and that all parties had come to an understanding, but my mother did it again. My partner has been having some health issues, and she's only recently confided in some friends and family about it. I confided in my mother because the situation impacts my ability to visit my parents and their ability to visit us. My mother has been emotionally supportive, but she told another relative about my partner's health problems. That relative, whom my partner has met only twice briefly, called my partner four times in one day to discuss her health issues. My partner is currently annoyed, but that will turn to anger within the next 48 hours. My mother gets offended when I tell her she has crossed a boundary, and I've litigated this topic with her dozens of times. I feel like the only path forward is to not tell her anything that could result in a boundary later being crossed, and instead say something to the effect of, I can't discuss a visit right now because of some things going on, and leave it at that. But that seems like an invitation to open up a whole new can of worms. Signed, Child of a Boundary Crosser. Dear Child of a Boundary Crosser, It's only a new worm can if you engage with the worms, or with the person holding the can opener, or with this whole metaphor. Plus, if you do choose to engage, then it's your worm can to deal with, not your partner's. That's the real point here. When you share your partner's private business with your mom, knowing full well mama can't keep a lid on the news, you're prioritizing your mom over your partner out of expediency. You know your partner, you know your mom will make it difficult for you if you say without details, it's not a good time to visit. You know your partner won't like it, but you're gambling that your mom might maybe possibly keep her mouth shut this time, so you might get away with it. And you're calculating that even if you don't get away with it because your mother blabs, then your partner will be the easier person to deal with when ticked off. Like I said, it's expediency. You're caving to your mom at your partner's expense because mom is more of a handful. The answer to that is clear and straightforward. 1. Stop caving to your mom at your partner's expense. And 2. Take your worms, or lumps, instead of dumping them on your partner. 
Bonus unsolicited advice. I can't say I'm delighted to read that your partner slow burns from annoyance to anger so predictably that you factor it into your cost-benefit analyses of what to tell whom. But as the child of a parent who leverages information and emotions for power, you were probably bound to operate with a version of normal that has this behavior woven through it. To help you navigate your mom and partner, and more important, just be yourself without fear of touching off some bad reaction in somebody, I hope you'll consider working with a therapist. What goes better than Super Bowl and barbecue? Five New Cape Restaurants by Gwen Friss of the Cape Cod Times. Cape Cod is blessed with many longtime restaurants that have been creating good food year-round and year after year. But the region is also famous for constantly hosting new places, new owners, new menus, or other new endeavors, so much so that it can take a scorecard to keep up with who's who. We invite you to join the Cape Cod Times free Facebook group, Good Stuff at Cape Cod Restaurants, to share your dining experiences, help generate polls about favorite foods, and chat about all things restaurants. Here are five new or newly reopened places to enjoy with family and friends to get us started. One, the Old Triangle in Hyannis. Settled into 412 Main Street in downtown Hyannis, the former site of the British Beer Company, the Old Triangle is named for the heavy old triangle beaten to waken prisoners in Mount Joy Jail in Dublin. Visit theoldtriangle.com to learn more, check out the music calendar, and hear Tommy Fleming sing The Old Triangle. But we're here to talk about food and money. The menu offers a mix of pub food, $14 for chicken wings or a burger, $9 for onion rings, two traditional Irish dishes, including $18 bangers, which are sausage, and mash, or $16 Guinness beef stew. An interesting blend of the two cuisines comes in the $19 New England pasty, yes, pasty, consisting of all the ingredients of a traditional turkey dinner tucked into a British baked pastry. Number two, the 53 Chop House at Mashpee Commons. Cape Cod coffee owners Jan and Pam Agerback have added 53 Chop House at their 53 Market Street location, billing it as the Cape's newest premier steakhouse. Nestled in a cozy space with white tablecloths and black chairs, 53 Chop House offers a range of sizes and prices, from a $49 six ounce filet mignon to a 42 ounce tomahawk prime ribeye designed to be shared by two and selling for $275. There's also a three course price fix meal of Chateaubriand for two at $150 on Thursdays. The steakhouse offers add ons including $28 lobster tail and $18 scallops. One interesting appetizer was roasted bone marrow for $19, served with grilled bread and gremolata, an Italian condiment of parsley, garlic, and lemon zest, which gives a bright balance to the rich, velvety marrow. The Chop House has wine dinners scheduled through July and, and starting with Valentine's Day. Details are on their website. Mi Pueblo in Hyannis some of you may remember Mi Pueblo's original location, a spot in an alley off Main Street in Hyannis that was so tiny it felt like stopping by a friend's kitchen for lunch. Mi Pueblo has relocated to a full-size eatery at 577 Main Street. 
Mi Pueblo offers authentic Mexican food, as seen in an average day's specials, which include dishes like menudo for $22, a beef tripe and lengua tacos for $18 made with beef tongue. The large menu also includes dishes that, while still authentic, may be more familiar to Cape diners. Dishes are well explained on the menu, and during a recent lunch there, the server was helpful. I had vegetarian tacos and wished I'd been more adventurous as the dipping broth that came with my colleague's birria tacos was suddenly seasoned and fragrant. Number four, the Smith Family Beer Garden in Hyannis. Started several months ago by brothers Dan and Pat Smith of Sandwich, the Smith Family Beer Garden is right near the center of Hyannis at 541 Main. Walk under a wooden arch to enter the Smith Family Beer Garden which has indoor and outdoor seating, and share space with Junior Betts Barbecue. The partners are hosting a Super Bowl party at 4 p.m. February 11th inside the Beer Garden building. The $39.99 ticket includes one drink ticket and all the barbecue you can eat. While the specific Super Bowl barbecue is not listed on the website, samples off the regular barbecue menu include a chopped brisket sandwich at $17, a full rack of ribs for 40 and $6 sides, including collard greens, cowboy beans, potato salad, and cornbread. And finally, at number five, we have Captain Ferris House Tea Room in South Yarmouth. There is something so civilized, and at the Captain Ferris House so seasonal, about having tea. The 10-room, circa 1845 bed and breakfast in the Bass River Village section of South Yarmouth reopens its tea room this weekend. Guests can anticipate a traditional three-tiered service that blends tradition with innovation, featuring a variety of teas paired with delightful sandwiches, pastries, and other culinary delights, according to a notice about the reopening. The tea room is open 11 to 1 and 2 to 4, Thursdays through Sundays. Reservations are required and can be made by calling the restaurant or online via open table. Guests are asked to note dietary restrictions when booking. The Captain Ferris House is located on Old Yarmouth Road in South Yarmouth. For more information, visit their website or on social media, including Facebook and Instagram at Captain Ferris House. More Cagney-esque. Cape Actor Stars in Annie National Tour by Frankie Rowley of the Cape Cod Times. Local theater star Jeffrey Kelly returns to Massachusetts, not as a Cape Cod actor, but as Rooster Hannigan in the National Tour of Annie for a five-night run at the Botch Center Wang Theater in Boston at the start of February. I'm very excited to grab some Tasty Burger because it's been a minute, Kelly joked. No, I'm very excited to go back to a city that I love and be surrounded by the supportive people who have been there since the start. It's going to be a lot of fun. The show is the first national tour Kelly has starred on, and its stint in Boston, from February 6th to 11th, marks the first time he'll perform on a Beantown stage. I was in the Boston University drumline in 2010 and 11, so it's going to be fun to be back toward that area, he said. Living in Marston's Mills, Kelly began his acting journey in middle school as a way of hanging out with a friend of his who was involved in the theater. His passion soon gave out, and despite a few high school theater appearances, Kelly didn't return to the stage until he was 23 at Cape Cod Community College. He had met Brian Rice, 
technical director of Cape Cod Community College, who helped and secure a few drumming gigs. One day, Kelly said, Rice came into a practice room he was using and asked if he wanted to be in Macbeth. Kelly took on the role of Macbeth's foil, Banquo, in the Shakespearean tragedy before switching to lighter fare on Cape Cod stages from Provincetown to Woods Hole. What shows has Jeffrey Kelly performed in on Cape Cod? I really enjoyed musical theater, so I kind of just started doing it out of nowhere and kept doing it because I just really enjoyed it so much, he said. Kelly's roles on Cape Stages included starring in several productions, including How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying at the Falmouth Theater Guild, Next to Normal at Woods Hole Community Theater, and Hair with Peregrine Theater Ensemble in Provincetown in 2018. Off-Cape shows included the off-Broadway production of Friends, the Musical Parody, Jersey Boys, and Million Dollar Quarter. When I look back at some of the shows that are on my resume that were formative toward my professional career, I would definitely say that Next to Normal and Hair are two big ones that I was kind of blown away, he said. I tend to like shows that have a bit more of an edge to them. Those shows resonated with me as a performer. While performing in Jersey Boys in Memphis, Kelly began submitting material for Annie after someone he knew in the show asked if he was interested in being part of it. He landed the role of Rooster Hannigan, the brother of Miss Hannigan and boyfriend of Lily St. Regis. The more I worked on the material, the more I fell in love with the show, because I really didn't know what to expect from Annie, he said. It's easily one of my favorite shows that I've ever done. With over 100 shows completed on his first national tour, I asked Kelly what some of the challenges have been adjusting to life on the road. He said, though it's more shows than he's normally used to, it's been a rewarding and exciting experience. On the one hand, it's somewhat exhausting going around the country so much and playing all these different venues, Kelly said. As soon as you get used to one venue, you all of a sudden need to pack up and go to the next. But honestly, it's a very good fatigue. You're doing the work, so it kind of fuels the tank a bit because everything is always constantly so fresh and keeping you on your toes. Director Jen Thompson takes Annie Tour back to 1977 roots. Before being Rooster, Kelly admitted that he hadn't seen any rendition of Annie until after the tour started. An intentional choice to avoid mimicking the performances of past Roosters like Tim Curry in the 1982 film adaptation and Alan Cumming in the 1999 film adaptation. They were doing specific things with it, and I didn't want to accidentally start to emulate that. And Jen Thompson had her own spins on how she wanted me to approach Rooster, he said. She wanted a much more James Cagney-esque version, so I intentionally didn't do any research on the previous Roosters. As for working with Thompson, director of the Annie National Tour, and the actress who played Pepper in the 1977 original Broadway production, Kelly applauded the direction in which she chose to take the play, saying it emphasizes the historical context surrounding Annie's life and harkens back to the original. I think what she wanted to do with this production more than anything else was she wanted to have it be a much more grounded, realistic version of Annie, Kelly said. I think a lot of productions have gone over the top, and the script has gone through multiple changes over the years, but she brought it back down to a very honest level. 
Plus, the deep love Thompson has for the show guided them through the process leading up to going on tour. She has so much experience and love for the show that she brought to the table, Kelly said. It was infectious and really kind of carried to each of us and made the process, I think, that much more fun and alive. It's always great when you have a director who knows what they're doing, but then also very much loves and cares for the show that they're directing. Annie comes to the Wang Theater from February 6th to 11th. Tickets range from $69 to $269 and can be bought online at theboxcenter.org. The show is directed by Jen Thompson, choreographed by Patricia Wilcox, and orchestrated by Dan DeLang. Talitha Fair is the music coordinator, and Jennifer Christina is the music director. Today's Best Bets column is headlined, Fundraisers, Latte Art, and Love Songs, Upcoming Cape Cod Events, by Frankie Rowley of the Cape Cod Times. While Valentine's Day is getting underway, hopefully you have plans made and tables booked, the Sandwich Town Hall Preservation Trust is bringing the spirit of another famous holiday to the Cape, with New Orleans jazz, swing, and the brass band Catnip Junkies performing at the Trust's Mardi Gras-themed fundraiser show on February 10th at the Old Town Hall. We thought it would be great to do an event that was fun, interactive, and a great break in the winter, said Jonathan Finn, secretary for the Sandwich Town Hall Preservation Trust. Some members on the committee had seen the Catnip Junkies perform a couple of times and loved the whole New Orleans vibe of what they do. We were looking at the calendar and realized... Mardi Gras falls at the beginning of February. What a nice tie-in. Funds raised from ticket sales for the show directly benefit the Trust's efforts to repair the stage inside the hall. As we try to use the space more for performances, whether they be theatrical or musical, we're trying to address some of the needs on the stage, from lighting to sound to curtains to microphones, Finn said modern technology, so that we're able to accommodate a wider range of events within the space. As one of the oldest performance spaces on the Cape, Finn said preserving its history is important while giving the space new life. It's a wonderful performing space, and we really want to make it all so that it can be so community members, whatever their interests, can have the type of events and entertainment that they'd love to see in that amazing space, Finn said. The show begins at 7 p.m. on February 10th. Tickets are $30 per person and can be purchased online at sandwichtownhall.org, where more information about the show can be found. Here are some other events taking place this week on Cape Cod. A Latte Art Showdown at Snowy Owl Coffee Roasters in Sandwich. Mugs at the ready. For one caffeinated night only, Watch local baristas battle it out at the Snowy Owl Coffee Roasters in Sandwich for its inaugural Latte Art Showdown at 6 p.m. on February 3rd. Baristas from across the Cape will compete to craft the most stunning latte to impress the judges. Anna Malozzi from Cavoya Coffee, Justin Ennis from Enjoy Coffee Roasters, and Tim McDonald from McDonald Espresso and Coffee and become the victor of the first Latte Art Showdown. While watching the intense showdown, spectators will be able to sample coffee and treats from local roasters, enjoy a bite from the Pineapple Caper Cafe food truck, and enter some raffles. The event is free to attend, but if you're looking to get your hands on a prize, it's $15 to pour. Entry fees can be paid online 
at SoCoffee.Company. Snowy Owl Coffee Roasters is on Route 6A in Sandwich. Before King Philip's War, a lecture on the real history of America in Falmouth. As part of their 2024 Links, or Linking Indigenous and Non-Indigenous Knowledge Incorporated, educational series, author and Aquino Wampanoag historian Linda Coombs is giving a lecture about America's real origin story before King Philip's War at 1 p.m. on February 3rd at the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship of Falmouth. The lecture is free to attend, and the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship of Falmouth can be found on Sandwich Road in East Falmouth. All My Heart, an evening of love songs with Donna Hammers at the Cultural Center of Cape Cod in South Yarmouth. Are you looking for a romantic night out for Valentine's Day weekend? Enjoy the musical stylings of local musician Donna Hammers as she plays a special love song-filled show, All My Heart, on February 10th at the Cultural Center of Cape Cod. Featuring works from John Lennon, Dionne Warwick, Joni Mitchell, and more, Hammer promises a night full of romance. The show begins at 7.30 p.m. with nibbles and a chance to meet Hammer at 6 p.m. Tickets are $25 for just the show, $45 for the pre-concert reception and show. To purchase, go to the website of theculturalcenter.org. The Cultural Center of Cape Cod is located on Old Main Street in South Yarmouth. Anthony Samarco explores the history of molasses at the Osterville Village Library. A sweet, thick brown syrup used for rum and cookies, molasses played a major role in the 18th century's economy, particularly in Massachusetts, one of the points on the triangle trade. In his upcoming lecture at the Osterville Village Library, author Anthony Samarco will explore the history of molasses from its role in the slave trade to the Great Molasses Flood in 1919. The lecture will begin at 1 p.m. on February 3rd and is free to attend. Seats can be reserved in advance by contacting Amy Wolf or calling the library. Meet the Cape Cod Canal Region Chamber of Commerce at its annual meeting in Wareham. The Cape Cod Canal Region Chamber of Commerce is hosting its annual meeting and networking event from 5 to 7.30 p.m on February 8th at Stone Path Malt of New England in Wareham. Operating under the theme of Love Your Chamber to be celebrated with hearts and chocolate, this year's event includes the annual State of the Chamber remarks, the election of new directors to the board, and a chance for community members to connect with their chamber and neighbors. Hors d'oeuvres will be provided by Minkle Boys Catering. Tickets are $24, and interested parties can sign up at capecodcanalchamber.org. Stone Path Malt of New England is located on Kendrick Road in Wareham. For more information, call 508-759-6000. And that's all I have time for today. This is your reader, Libby, saying thank you for listening.